Well, good morning again, Raquel. Good to see you. And if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 6 or open up your apps to Matthew 6. We're going to be in verses 24 through 34. Now, I believe that God has created us to have ambition. A- ambition is this idea of desiring something greater or bigger than even ourselves. A- ambition is this understanding that we're not just going to settle for the way things are. We, we desire for, mind you, mind you, even greatness. Now, I think this is in, intuitive in us because God created us to worship. We, we are a worshiping people desiring someone or something bigger than just ourselves. The title today is How Not to Be Anxious. Most often, our anxiety exists because our ambition is misplaced. We're to have a godly ambition. We see this throughout the scriptures. We wouldn't have an ambition If Jesus didn't come to the disciples and say, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you to the ends of the age. What Jesus is telling his disciples is, you have ambition. I want you to go into all the world. That's pretty ambitious, to go into all the world with this gospel message. If the disciples did not have ambition, they would have never tried to achieve that which Jesus sent them on a mission to go do Now, we also see in Matthew 18, and we'll read this and we'll preach on this in 2022 or 2023. But the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And notice that in Matthew 18, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for asking who's the greatest in the kingdom. Instead, Jesus says to them, hey, I want the little children to come. And if you don't approach the king like these little children approach me, you will not even be in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not rebuke them for desiring greatness. Jesus says, if you want to be in the kingdom, you've got to have a spirit about you, a humility about you, and a life about you like these little children do. It's amazing to me that even when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and I relate to this in these days, he says this in verse 24 of chapter 9. He, he says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Then he says this, run in such a way to win the prize. See, Paul is telling the church in Corinth, and I think he's even telling us, that when we run the race of life that we've been given, we're not just to run and meander through life or meander through the race. We're to run with the aim to win. We're to have a, an ambition about us that is purposeful, namely that it's, it's a Godward or a godly ambition. See, because anxiety often preps up in our life, and it's amazing to me, our anxiety often exists because we have a misplaced ambition in our lives. Jeremiah says, he says this, you will search me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. There's a sense in which Jeremiah is telling the people, he's saying, hey, when you are seeking after the Lord, you got to do it with all of your heart. That's ambition bubbling up in our lives. The problem for us, though, is because either the enemy, is, he quenches, he squelches it out, or he perverts our ambition, or we are not full of the fullness of God so that we can have a God word or a godly ambition. See, I don't think ambition is wrong or evil, but I also don't think anxiety is the problem either. I think worry. And I think anxiety percolates up in our hearts because our ambition is misplaced. 
If you're out your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We're actually going to start in verse 24 and read all the way through the end of the chapter. We'll have it on the screen for you to follow, but if you're there, will you say word? No one, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Some of your translations say, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Life, isn't life more than food? And the body, and the body more than what you will wear? Isn't life more than food and the body, more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky, verse 26 says. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why don't, why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear. For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry for or about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We have a tendency to look at these familiar verses and be a little pessimistic. Even if you back up all the way to verse 19, where he says, don't store up for yourselves. Don't store up. Don't store up for yourself possessions here on this earth. And then you you come down to to verse 25 and he says, don't be anxious or don't worry about your life. And you you might just for a moment be a little pessimistic about what you're reading and seeing, oh, that's pretty negative. But I, I want to make sure Part of the reason why we have anxiety, part of the reason why we worry in life is because we have done this very thing. We have stored up treasures on this earth. We've prized them above anything else. But I think anxiety and I think the storing up of treasures on this earth are secondary issues to this text. I think we have maybe the temptation to make them the priority, but I think they're secondary because I think the primary focus of this text is verse 24 and verse 33. I think if we're talking about how to not be anxious, I think we have to really take to heart verse 24 and really take to heart verse 33. The goal is that we might have one master, and the aim is that we might seek his kingdom. The reason why worry and anxiety is brought up here is because that so often is what keeps us from focusing on the main thing. So if I were to summarize this morning, if you hear anything else today, think think on this. We ought to have undivided commitment to the king and unhindered focus on his kingdom undivided commitment to the king and unhindered focus on his kingdom. Another way to say it, we should have undivided and unhindered commitment and focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. If you hear nothing else from me today, 
undivided commitment to Jesus, unhindered focus on his kingdom. We see this in verse 24. There's several key words. He, he has the word master, and he has the word devoted, and he has the word love, and he has the word serve. We talked about this last week. He talks about master. Who, who, is, who is your master is the question. Another way to say this is who calls the shots in your life? When, when, when it all comes and boils down to the end of the day, who is the one in your life that's, that's calling the shots? Who, who, where does the buck stop in your family? That person or that thing is the one who has authority over you. That person or that thing is the one who is guiding and leading you. Of course, I believe as a follower of Jesus that our life should have Jesus as the one and only authority. He should be the authority of our lives. Now notice here, Jesus doesn't say you can't have more than one master. He just says that at some point, while you might have many masters, one of them will take the priority. One of them will be the one that you have undivided commitment to. One of them will be the one that you ultimately serve. The problem is not that you can't have multiple masters. The problem is that you can't serve multiple masters. You will give in to the ultimate one at some point. There will be a point where these masters will call upon you to do something. And whoever is at the top of the, the heap, that's the one that you ultimately submit to. We face this in life. In our 20s, the master for us was freedom and enjoyment. Freedom from responsibility. Many of us were in college at this time in life stage and some of us really tried to live it up. And we found ourselves submitting to that master over and over again. We learned, though, that all that enjoyment and all that freedom comes with a cost to our own bodies. We'd wake up and headaches and sickness would ensue. We'd say, I'm never doing that again. And so instead of turning from that one master to the great and ultimate master, we turned to in our 30s, late 20s and early 30s, to workaholism and materialism, thinking that life was the accumulation of things. We wanted the houses that our parents had when they had bought them in their 50s and 60s, but we wanted them in our 20s and 30s. So we worked hard and we gave our lives to our work and dedicated ourselves to be a good worker. And I'm not saying that you should be a slacker or lazy, but I'm saying if that's your master, you'll do anything and everything for those things. Materialism became our master and our king. And then we get to our 40s and we're swimming and actually drowning in debt. We say, I don't want that anymore. I just want to be in charge. I don't want to have to work. I just want to tell others to work. So in our 40s and even in our 50s, it becomes about power and control. And so whatever spheres that we're in, whether that be Little League or that be even in church, that became our prize. We wanted to serve that master. It left us feeling empty again, and so we come to our 60s and 70s, and we begin to think about what kind of legacy will I leave? What will, be, uh, what will I be known for after I'm gone from here? It's another master, clouded in a good intention, but clouded because it ultimately will not help in the long run. Surprising to me, I, my grandfather is the one who led me to Jesus he discipled me in Jesus. He even paid for me to go learn about more, about more about Jesus. 
But his father, my great-grandfather, I never knew. I don't know him. Never even met him once. Yet if he set his life up to think about his legacy, what he would be known for, even his own family do not recall his name at the supper table. These are all different masters that we find ourselves into. Each one, as we've talked about with our men on Thursday mornings, is an idol and they never satisfy. In fact, Jesus will say it this way. The thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest or life more abundantly. Jesus comes to us in Luke 9, and he says this in verse 23. If anybody wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Meaning that you have to come to a place in your life where you're no longer pursuing the material things. You're no longer pursuing enjoyment. You're no longer pursuing legacy and comfort. You're no longer pursuing power and control. You're saying, I want what Jesus wants. I want to have an undivided commitment to Jesus. So how do you know what your master is? How do you know what your master is? He, he tells us. Because you might be sitting there saying, I, I think Jesus is my master. I mean, I come and I, I give to him. I, I've received him as my savior. But how do I know that he's my master? Well, he says, your master will be the one that you love and the one that you're devoted to. And when you love that one and devoted to it, you'll serve that one. You'll either hate one or love the other. The one that is your master is the one that you love. The one that is your master is the one that you, you create space to be with. It's the one that you desire. It's the one that you long for. The one that you give up disposable income for and time to be with. It's amazing to me that the greatest commandment isn't do more things for Jesus. Y'all know what the great commandment is. It says love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And even your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Jesus not tell us more things to do, but he says, I want you to love me with all that you have. Why? Because when you have affections for Jesus, when your love is so at its peak for Jesus, you can't help but love other people. It begins in the heart. When I first started dating Abigail... And began to hung out with her family. She lived in Hereford, Texas, which is next to the end of the world. We'd drive out there, or maybe I'd fly, and I'd spend time with her family. And her dad never had to pull me aside and, and take me to the movies with several O's, because they were the Hereford white faces. And he never took me to the Feed-A-Lot, which was one of the places to eat in Hereford, Texas. Yes, it was called the Feed-A-Lot. It was a buffet. Are you surprised? He never pulled me aside and said, Michael, I need to talk to you because I'm very concerned about how you love Abby. Never once did he say, I, you say you love Abby, but you don't speak to her. He never said to me, hey, you say you love Abby, but you never show affection to her. He never said, hey, you love Abby, but you never speak kindly about her to other people. He, he never had to say that because my love for Abby was on full display to everybody in the room. If there was a spot on the couch next to her, there wasn't no room for the Holy Spirit. We were just sitting right next to one another. We 
showed affection to one another. We loved each other. We held hands together. We were not shy about our affection. Never once did her dad have to pull me aside and question it. Many of us claim to love God. And while I'm not here to judge your fruit, we can inspect it to say, you say you love God, but when we look at your life, it says something completely different. You chase after what you love. You're devoted to that which you love. One is your master and one is not. Devoted is this idea of loyalty, being loyal to someone, the, the one that you obey, the one that you would give your life up for. When your family says it's going to be this, no, Jesus says this. When your flesh says this, Jesus says, no, 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 this. I think about this in Luke 14, the passage that scares many because they read it and don't understand what is going on because Jesus will say this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, think about the severity of this text that even Jesus is saying. Now, look, we can get way into the context, but, but just think for a second. Not many of us, not many of us are known for loving our father and mother more than we love Jesus. But many of us are known for loving our children more than we love Jesus. I see us allowing our time to be controlled by our children. Instead of following Jesus. We allow our children to sometimes be the boss in the home. It's amazing. Again, I've said this. It's amazing to me that sometimes a four-year-old can change the whole tenor in a house. You been there? I'm swimming in it. I mean, I feel like I was already drowning and then they handed us a baby. It's like, oh, no. We have to remember, hey, hey, wait a minute. On the priority scale, Christ, Christ above everything else. It's, it's amazing to me that many of us give ourselves to our hobbies more than we give ourselves as devotion to Jesus. The one you're devoted to, loyal to, going to do anything for is your master. And you can only serve one. Serve is a reference to the one that you work for. Serve is the one that you sacrifice for. Serve is the one that you you spend your life for. Who is it that you serve? When we follow Jesus, we're submitting our time. We're submitting our money, our calendar, our agenda under the lordship of Jesus. And he's a good master. He cares for you. He tells us in this text, don't you think I don't know that you need those things? I love you and I'm going to care for you. If I care for the grass, don't you think I'm going to care for you? Godly ambition is coming to a place in your life where you seek it out, undivided. You're at a fork in the road and you choose Christ above all the other offerings this world can give. It's being all in with Jesus. It's saying whatever he has, I want to be part of it. How not to be anxious? You have to replace your anxiety with godly ambition. You have to say, I want Christ above all else. Now, I need you to be clear. 
I need to be clear. I'm, I'm not there. As a pastor of this church, I don't want you to get the impression, well, the pastor's arrived, and we're all trying to be like the pastor. Godly ambition doesn't mean godly completion. You're still in progress. We, we are still, God is still at work in our lives. It's a desire to be done. It's a wanting to have happen. We strive each day for him to be our Lord. It's why we don't have this moment where we say, well, I've walked through that door and I'm good. No, no, it's a daily striving, desiring, longing for him to be our one and only master. And when we find ourselves straying from it, and it happens sometimes so quickly, and some of you say, man, I just snap sometimes. Yeah, it's the flesh at war with your soul. Why? What does the enemy want to do? He wants to steal it. He wants to kill it. He wants to destroy it. And if he can't destroy you, he wants to defeat you and deflate you. So we've got to have an undivided attention on Jesus. But look at verse 33. He says something different. He says, you also need to seek first. What? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you have an undivided attention on Jesus and you have an unhindered focus on Jesus' kingdom. The goal for each of us is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The best way to battle anxiety, I think, is to not seek the things of this world, but to seek his kingdom in this world. The reason why we have to wage war on anxiety and worry is because we have sometimes ungodly concern for all the wrong things. Don't get me started on football. I saw people last night just on Twitter. Hurry up, Alabama. I need to go to bed. Or, it's halftime, and we know what's going to happen to Texas. They will not do what they need to do. And people's anxiety just was risen up. Some people said, I can't sleep now. My heart is pounding. Desiring, affections. We have un, sometimes ungodly concern for the wrong things. Sometimes. Sometimes. But in chapter 4 and 5 and 6, here's what Jesus says about the kingdom. You remember in chapter 4, Jesus says, the kingdom, he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In chapter 5, he says, you ought to pray that the kingdom of God will come. You remember this? In chapter 5, when he, the Lord's prayer. And now here in chapter 6, he says, you ought to seek first the kingdom of God. So in chapter 4, it's here and it's now. In chapter 5, it's only God can give. And in chapter 6, it's this idea of you got to seek it so it can be your first priority. So which is it? Which one is it, Jesus? Yes, it's all of them. It's here and now. It's only he who can give, but it's also one that we have to seek for it to come. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that in all of this, 
We have to understand we've got to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and then all these things, they'll be added to us. Jesus says we're to pray for the kingdom to come. We're to seek for his kingdom to be revealed, for Christ to rule and reign in his people, for his power to be manifested, for us to see deliverance of sickness and freedom from demonic oppression, to cease to see the strongholds in our lives eliminated. All of these things can only happen when we're actively seeking his kingdom and his righteousness above everything else. I'm not saying that football or even a job or even a sport or a hobby is bad or wicked or evil. I'm just saying it's got to take first priority. And then all these things, oh, you can enjoy those things. There's nothing wrong or evil or wicked in enjoying those things or being excited about those things. But what's the first priority for you? When we say your kingdom come, we're asking God to, to fill every square inch of earth like he has filled it in heaven. We're asking God to do what only he can do. I want you to be seeking I want you to be seeking the first the first priority we might even call it aggressively pursue relentlessly chase after why because when you first seek the kingdom of God and God's economy all these things that stress and worry you he takes care of them it doesn't mean you sit on your hands and just kind of do whatever you want to do. It just says that he is a, he's aware and he will fulfill and provide for you. So undivided commitment, unhindered focus, they go together. They have to. The more you seek to be undivided to the king, the more you'll see the kingdom of Jesus come. You know, when we first see Jesus come onto the scene, the Spirit comes upon him like a dove. And it's at that moment that somebody even said that the fullness of God was dwelling in Jesus. Not that he didn't have it beforehand, but it's the beginning of his ministry. We see in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 4 and even in John 1, they're all references to the fullness of God pleasing to dwell in Jesus. The reason why everywhere Jesus went, he saw manifestations. I mean, even in Mark 1, the he, he comes into a scene and the demons speak to Jesus. They go, uh, we know who you are. Do you think there's any less demonic oppression happening in our world today than when it happened in the time of Jesus? Here's the difference. The demons aren't intimidated by the fullness of God in us. We've not been seeking first the kingdom of God. The fullness of God is not even in us. The apostles, the same thing. They're sent out by Jesus before Acts chapter 2. And they come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, even the demons fell from the sky. Man, they were, all these things were happening. It was so cool, Jesus. Do it again. And they, Jesus says to them, hey, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Why? It's amazing to me because Paul will pray, or Paul will say this in Ephesians 3.19. He says, I'm praying that you would have the fullness of God in you. The fullness of God in you. Why does he say that? Well, I think it's because Paul knew where his, the power in his preaching came from. We have some charismatic friends, and I think they get it wrong here because they, they think that if you have the fullness of God, you will do healings and you will see all these things happen and that they've already got it. But I think that it's an already but not yet moment. 
The desire of our heart and Paul's primary prayer for us was that we would have the fullness. We'd be so full up of the spirit of Christ that everywhere we go, that when we speak, the kingdom of God would come. I mean, think of it this way. Jesus has got a battery and you have a battery in your phone and sometimes it gives you a percentage and you've got 20% or 30% left in your battery. Maybe some of you are at 10% today. But Jesus' fullness of God battery was 100%. Always. There's never a moment that he was not at 100%. And I think that's because Jesus was so in tune with the Heavenly Father. When he was tempted with sin, he renounced it and denied it. So many of us, we show up to church. We come and we have 10% to offer the Lord. Well, I gave my 10%. I serve my 10%, I show up 10%, and we wonder, we wonder why we only see 10% of the kingdom of God at hand. What would happen if we had preachers, and I'm talking to me now, I'm not talking to you, sometimes the preachers at 10%, no wonder we only see 10% effective, because sometimes the spirit of the fullness of God is only at 10%, but oh, if we had preachers and ministers of the gospel and group teachers and ministers and Sunday school teachers who were so full of the Holy Spirit that everywhere they went, the demons even said, hey, we know what team you guys are on. It's not just because you got that shirt on. We know who your boss is. There's something that we could see happen in our day if we would just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I'm not trying to heap a burden on you. I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to worry. But I think if we had a church who was so committed to have the fullness of God in them, that meant they were going to repent of their sin when they were confronted with it. That meant that they were going to do all they can to help those who are far from God to become followers of Jesus. They were going to hear the gospel declared to be discipled as a believer and be deployed as a church. Oh, that we would be so longing for the Spirit of God to move among us, to come to a place where Everybody gets annoyed with those people from Rock Hill who ask people, have anybody told you that Jesus loves you today? That we'd show up to restaurants. By the time we got to the restaurant and ordered our food, they'd already heard it 500 times about that question. So who's the master of your life? I've been confronted with this all week. Who's, who's calling the shots in my world? Sometimes it's not work or a hobby. Sometimes it's just us. We have ambition, but it needs to be godly ambition. So today, if you've confronted with that, you, you need to just repent of it. Repent and believe that Jesus loves you and cares for you. He forgives you. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And what a perfect opportunity for us to go, Lord, am I... Do I have undivided attention, commitment, or do I, do I have unhindered focus on you? We need to pray. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We need to seek. We want to seek first your kingdom, Lord. Not our preferences. Not even what we want, but what you want. Let's pray together. Father, we come now, and Lord, do we know this is impossible. 
It is impossible to have our heart's affection, to have an undivided commitment and an unhindered focus. It is impossible apart from knowing you. And Father, today, if there's someone here that wants to know you, they want their lives to be changed and transformed, God, would you help them to not hold on to that chair, but to come forward, give their life to following you. Lord, there may be some in this room that one day early in their life, they, they've trusted in you, but over the days, they've, they've tried to lead their lives and live their lives their way. Father, would you convict our hearts to repent and believe again in you? But Lord, there may be some here today they need to take some time to pray for their kids and their family members who've wandered from you. They would seek again your kingdom. God, help us to have an undivided commitment, unhindered focus on Jesus and his kingdom, we ask in Christ's name.